Hello, and welcome to Energy Levelized. I'm Morgan. And I'm Bill, and we're your hosts. Energy Levelized is a glimpse behind the scenes, a chance to hear from the passionate personalities behind the mountains of research the Enverse Intelligence team puts out on the energy space. For those that aren't familiar with Enveris, we're an energy SaaS firm that is influencing the world's most important energy decisions by connecting an industry through intelligence, data analytics, and smart network technologies. We invite you to join us as we have fun, unscripted, and honest conversations tackling the toughest questions in energy. Hello, and welcome to this latest edition of Energy Levelized, the Inveris podcast where we shed light on complex issues in the fast-changing energy landscape by interviewing industry experts both within the Inveris family and outside. Today, I'm really excited to be joined by a new co-host, Ian Niebuhr, um, and we have our guest, Adam Jordan, today to discuss power and renewables, specifically on how U.S. state and federal regulators are managing the integration of renewable technologies um, at a time when power demand comes surging back in the aftermath of COVID-19, uh, as well as rising summer temperatures. Thanks, Morgan. It's great to join the Levelized team here. And what a subject to kick off with. Adam brings more than 15 years of power market experience to Inveris. Prior to Inveris, Adam led a research team covering the seven deregulated US power markets and has also worked for independent power producers as an analyst, getting hands-on with operations, hedging, and planning activities. He holds a degree in economics and finance from Bentley University. Welcome, Adam. Thanks, Ian and Morgan. Happy to be here. Happy to have you. So let's let's dive into it. It feels like electricity markets have been topping mainstream news headlines for years. You know, whether it's the cause of wildfires because of blackouts on the West Coast, uh, freeze offs in Texas last year. Um, but the industry is undergoing significant change with high gas prices, nudging residential power prices higher. Um, but renewables, um, particularly solar and wind, making steady inroads into the mix as coal declines. So it's interesting that despite the surging gas prices, especially what we're seeing today, uh, generators have not turned back to coal in any meaningful way. So my, my first question to you, Adam, is what is your sense of the near to medium term outlook for that generation mix? What are the limits to the growth we're seeing in renewables? And, and do you see a larger role for a gas-fired generation? All right, great question. There's a... Uh... There's there's a lot in there, and and kind of towards the first part of that, just in terms of uh, power markets making headlines, you know, it's refreshing to be able to talk about this in terms of growth and renewables and the generation mix instead of uh, just wildfires and disaster. As someone who's been kind of passionate about this for a long time, it's always been frustrating when you you can ask uh, the average person what the price of oil is, and they could probably get close. And if you ask the the same person what the price of power is, they'll tell you what they pay monthly for, for electricity. So that's really important as, as we think about the generation mix because coal is not coming back, first of all. Um, the, the coal has been, over the last 10 years, largely priced out because of cheap natural gas and the increase in renewable generation to lower cost options. And the economics have done more to, to push coal out of the stack than it's fair to say that, that most legislative actions or climate initiatives. Now that we've seen increased renewable portfolio standards, commitments to decarbonization, those are further headwinds for coal to possibly make a return. Uh, a higher priced gas environment would 
suggest that coal-fired generation is economical, meaning it would be profitable to generate, but it's it's you can't just reopen these these plants that have been retired in some cases demolished. So what does that mean for for the mix and where and where we are now and where we're going? So if we look at what uh, are called the generation interconnection queues, announced projects that these markets uh, study to make sure that they can handle the additions and and maintain reliability, there's no coal, hardly any gas, and it's primarily solar and storage now. Even wind is starting to make up less of the the future generation mix. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that. One in terms of the cost to build a solar farm or a wind farm, it's on par with new gas-fired generation. So the technology has matured to the point where you can uh, kind of take your pick and from a from an economic perspective. You know, think a million dollars a megawatt, kind of plus or minus a few hundred grand, um, whether it's gas, wind, or solar. Renewable portfolio standards, corporate commitments to decarbonizing still have been very influential in driving this renewable growth. But as you alluded to, Morgan, it creates some challenges in terms of reliability. The wind doesn't always blow. The sun doesn't always shine. So gas plays a very important role right now. And and I think from a pure reliability perspective, there are certain places in in the U.S. where not seeing any planned increase in gas-fired generation or dispatchable power you can call upon when you need it is a little alarming. It's a it's a risky place to be if in terms of the build out there. Yes, yeah, I mean it's interesting. It sounds like when you look at that power mix, we've dropped coal. Mm-hmm. Nuclear's been tough to include for a long, long time. Gas is now being dropped. I mean, are we just moving to a, a market where we're getting more and more single-threaded in terms of the types of generation capacity we can accommodate? And then I guess as a follow-up to that, what else comes into the fold, uh, or is there anything else that comes into the fold with this new pricing dynamic and energy market that we're looking at? Yeah, so the idea of a kind of a single fuel system being natural gas is kind of scary because, again, where we see constraints in natural gas systems now, like California, and the northeast parts of the U.S., that could happen elsewhere as we see just the the call for gas reliable power generation increase. Um, the, uh, you'll you'll hear frequently, and and it's a great question and part of the future is is storage. Right now, long duration storage that we would really need to replace or supplement gas fired generation just isn't there. We have short duration, typically lithium ion batteries. So is nuclear coming back? Um, I personally hope so. I think it's a great baseload solution. And in terms of carbon, it doesn't emit anything. So I I, I hope that we see sensible policy help bring that back into the mix. I think one of the biggest barriers for nuclear is just public sentiment. Um, So kind of getting back to your question, it's, it's gas. Is it's not a transition fuel. It's kind of the fuel, um, and I just don't think that you can build enough solar and wind to completely displace some hydrocarbon as part of the fuel mix anytime soon, like in our lifetimes. It's pretty interesting with uh, a nine handle on gas. It, it, well, and it oddly enough, that should help incentivize new gas fire generation to be built. The problem again, though, is that in many places, it's a carbon emitting source of power. So well, it's, it's I mean, in terms of 
burning a fossil fuel to create power. It's as clean as uh, you're reasonably going to get and hopefully advances in carbon capture technology um, and other ways to mitigate climate change help ensure the, the reliability of, of, of power supply because it you need those reliable sources of generation. There's just no way around it. it you, you cannot rely uh, on solar and wind keep the lights on 24/7. And I'm not anti-renewables. Like there it's it's uh it's been amazing to see how well they've been integrated. They are a huge part of the future, but we we have this bridge period where we got to keep things running. So got it. Well, speaking of renewables, it sounds like one of the big news of the week is President Biden's decision to allow tariff-free imports of solar panels from some or I guess four Southeast Asian countries. I, I know there's a big backstory here. Perhaps you can shed some light on like, why does this matter? Why is this headline? Like, wh where is this coming from? Sure. So I'll try to give the, the Twitter length background. So the Department of Commerce is investigating four Southeast Asian countries, Malaysia, Thailand, Vietnam, and Cambodia, into whether or not they are circumventing tariffs on Chinese produced components. Essentially, plainly speaking, China ships components to those four countries they then ship them to the u.s or you know change them a little bit and ship them to the u.s and, and they they step around chinese tariffs which are much higher than they are in those countries this really spooked the market that the investigation opened on april 1st and the reaction from one of the the larger trade groups the solar energy institute of america uh seia i th think i got those letters <laughs> i think i got those letters right they said that as many as like 80% of projects would be suspended, massive layoffs, massive job impacts. We're not going to meet any sort of climate goals that that solar helps support. Very dramatic, but also when you're talking about your capital costs uh, going up just based on the a, a tariff of 50 to 250%, that is real reason for concern. So a couple of months go by and uh, just a couple of days ago, Monday, June 6th, the White House uh, enacted the the Defense Production Act, and there's a few things in there, um, but one of them is to pause any changes to tariffs on those four countries. So the commerce investigation is going to proceed. Whatever they find will play out, but there's a two-year freeze on tariffs from those countries. The idea here that that's also being coupled with grants and loans and other initiatives for U.S. solar production to ramp up. So that's kind of the, the background. Um, so what happens if, for the next two years? It feels like status quo, but the truth is that status quo is is full of inflationary and supply chain issues. Prior to this investigation starting, we already sort of had a bearish view on planned solar additions just because of of ongoing supply chain issues. And if you look at some of the the earnings reports from from some of the the major players, it's not just components and raw materials. It's shipping containers. It's fuel. It's all of those things that impact other industries plus the actual raw materials. So um, two years of status quo sounds great. There are still a lot of headwinds just from pure, just that are impacting so many other industries. What happens at the end of two years? Um, the Biden administration is hoping that we will double domestic solar PV production capacity. Um, two years is not a long time to double that that capacity, these it's, it's capital intensive, a lot of manufacturing. If we broke ground today, assuming that someone had all of that capital just laying around waiting for for this news, just from a pure construction point of view, it it seems real challenging to meet. 
So at the end of two years, we're kind of back where we are today with pending tariffs, more uncertainty. Um, and in two years, well, the U.S. is also seeing another presidential election. So shifting political sands is just another layer of uncertainty that can really spook capital investment. So that wasn't exactly Twitter length, but. <laughs> no, it's great. It's really interesting. One question I have is Oxen Solar's role in calling for the investigation. You know, it's produced a lot of heat in the solar sector. You know, is this something that's par for course in an emerging high growth industry? Or is it pointing to something more structurally wrong with the sector and are the growth ambitions that we have for solar realistic? I mean, I think you just touched on that and that two years doubling is, is unrealistic, but yeah, I'll let you answer. Yeah. So, so Oxen is, is really interesting. Um, it's a very small manufacturing company, about 150 megawatts capacity per year. Um, that is tiny when we think about you know 14 gigawatts of solar kind of being planned to be installed i think that was the, the most we've ever installed in a year but so they make up a very very small part of that they have every right to ask the department of commerce to investigate and, and their case has merit even the seia has a fairly pessimistic view and from their point of view uh in, in how the investigation is going to go so i i think it is it feels a bit unusual i i, I get the well, actually, the Department of Commerce saw a similar request for investigation late last year, essentially the same case, but the the people, the companies who asked for the investigation wanted to remain anonymous, and Department of Commerce said, if you're not going to let us name names, we're not going to investigate. I'm guessing Oxen was probably part of that. I don't know that. Um, so that does signal that there there is some unity there from from domestic manufacturing. And as I mentioned, the, the case has merit. Like if, if it doesn't matter if you produce 10 megawatts or 10 gigawatts, if, if it impacts your business um, and you think someone's essentially sneaking around the rules, I think I'd want someone to look into it. So, you know, it, in terms of, is that that common in emerging technologies? I, I don't, I candidly, I don't have a good sense for that. I, I think this is closer to a kind of an international trade law sort of situation than as much as it is emerging technology. And and it's a story about U.S. manufacturing just being higher cost than, than other producers uh, and using non-market forces to try to onshore jobs and remain competitive in the global market. I'm not going to say subsidy, but well, like I said, I just did. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's turn to Texas. It's hot this week and ERCOT continues to make the news. It seems like it's a news pretty repeatedly here as a market that at times has looked fragile. Uh, and it sounds like power gen and sort of investment there just hasn't been enough or perhaps that's a, a perspective out there. So can you share a little bit like what's going on with investment into, into ERCOT? Why is it you know looking the way it is and why does it keep making the news? It, well, it's... Uh... It's a fascinating market because the, the way that ERCOT is designed, it's called an energy-only market, meaning that there's no capacity payments. There's, there's really a, a generator has to rely on the power that they produce to make money. Like other markets like PJM, you have some revenue streams just for being there and, and that to help maintain reliability. But ERCOT has a energy-only market design. So what does that mean? That, that as prices get higher, it will create incentives to build new generation. And that sounds great on paper, but again, I think that the, well, 
just stay on market design for a moment. Think about that, that you need high power prices for a prolonged period of time to get new generation, which would help maintain reliability and in theory drive prices down. That is politically untenable. And, and there's extreme examples. You know, Superstorm Uri last year was a complete catastrophe. And it, it exposed a few different problems, many of them weather-related. But even what made a lot of the headlines were the extremely high power prices, people getting you know five-digit power bills. Now, that's an extreme example. But what we're seeing now in with this spring heat is we're seeing very high pricing again. And it's causing a lot of pain for, for the ratepayer. And we're not seeing investment. We continue to see solar and storage in the interconnection queue in the planned projects. There's no gas. There's really nothing that you'd expect to see based on the market design and the way that ERCOT talks about the market. So that's one component there. The storage will help, but you just can't build enough of it fast enough, again, to, to really avoid complete catastrophes as rare as they might be. They can help with moments of high pricing. So because we've seen coal retirements um, and some gas retirements and increased reliance on intermittent generation, wind, solar, when you have a moment like Superstorm Uri or even at the beginning of May, they lost a few large reliable generators and had to issue, it wasn't even that hot. <laughs> they had to issue alerts uh, to conserve power. It's it's really kind of worrisome. And I think there's a lot of blame placed on renewables, and I don't think that's quite fair. So even going back to Superstorm Uri, there was not a lot of wind generation. There also wasn't scheduled to be a lot of wind generation. Like that wasn't a surprise to the operators. And earlier in May, and even, and, and well, even let's talk about this week. You know, yesterday, ERCOT set a new June record for all-time demand, 72 gigawatts. That's two gigawatts short of their all-time record. That's a lot of power. Wind is producing 20 gigawatts, solar seven, eight gigawatts right now. It's making up a third of the supply um, in, in some hours. It's the saving grace, and it has been through some of the, these moments in the spring. So, tangent. <laughs> uh, so why does ERCOT continue to make headlines? Growing demand. It's It's got a growing economy, everything from cryptocurrency, to people moving there from, you know, the, the migration from California to Texas. Um, and it's, and to your point, Ian, it, it's not seeing investment in reliable generation. So all eyes point to summer. And traditionally, ERCOT, as with all other markets, have all eyes on summer. Generators aren't allowed to do, typically allowed to do maintenance outages. Like every, it's all hands on deck. So ERCOT is likely to be okay again, barring catastrophe, force majeure type events throughout the summer, because there's also very strong incentives for load curtailment, demand response on these hottest days um, for the months of June through September. But it's still tight. You know, if we lose a nuke, you know, a couple gigs of generation, Comanche Peak or STP, uh, uh, there's no reason to suggest we, they would. They're extremely reliable, but they're just big. So it's you kind of think about losing your largest unit. Could that cause extremely high prices for a period? Certainly. Would it cause the same level of catastrophe as last February? Probably not. Gotcha. So we're running up on, on time here. So maybe Ian, I'll pass it off to you to ask one last question. Well, 
I guess it leads to sort of the obvious thing that you, you mentioned and that the importance of storage, especially in a market like ERCOT, but in general, and we hear a lot more about battery energy storage systems. Um, so will they, will they serve the grid, save the grid? Does it solve these problems? Does it get us over all these intermittency stuff? There's a lot to unpack there, but maybe just a, a couple headlines around where you see that technology fitting into the grid of the future. Yeah, uh, storage is the perfect solution for that scenario where we lose a large unit and we need some resource to quickly help maintain reliability. The current storage technology can save the grid for, again, if it's all charged up and ready to go, um, a couple hours, which is right now should be long enough, but we really need to see continued growth and and I think a, a shift in technology to allow longer duration storage to see a significant impact on just average pricing, uh, on reliability. So it, it's great for a crisis moment. And there's enough there in places like ERCOT to, to help, but we just need more um, to, to get beyond kind of serving like the ancillary markets and being there as uh, helping with those frequency responses, little fast acting moments. Um, we got a ways to go before it, it starts to really move the needle and just the way that we think about just your average day in a power market. Gotcha. Makes sense. Uh, so thanks, Adam, and thanks, Ian, for this fascinating and thought-provoking conversation. Um, yeah, it was really fun to have you in here today. Great. Thanks for having me. If you want to continue this conversation and learn more about Inveris's insights, research, and data products, please contact the Inveris team. This podcast was recorded on June 8th, 2022. Inveris Intelligence Research Incorporated provides leading energy industry research and is a subsidiary of Inveris, the largest SaaS company in the world solely dedicated to the energy market. Therefore, any company mentioned in this podcast may be a subscriber or client of Inveris Intelligence Research, Inveris, or their affiliates. However, any views expressed in this podcast accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about any subject securities referenced. The information contained in this recording is provided for information purposes only and is not to be used or considered as investment advice or recommendation or offer to buy, hold, or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Please visit www.inveris.com disclosures for additional information.